Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. In today's episode, I speak with Mike Benson, Managing Director of the Scottish Cranagh Centre. Mike shares with us the truly unique working environment at the centre and the variety of opportunities they're able to offer young people who struggle with mainstream education. We talk about the devastating fire back in 2021, but all the positivity around building back bigger and stronger than ever. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. All right, Mike, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. It's lovely to see you. It's been a long time since I saw you. I think last year I last saw you speak at an event. So I'm delighted that you've been able to give me a little bit of your time today to come on and chat. As ever, I've got some stupid icebreakers to start the podcast with. Right, I know that you've got a dog. What is the stupidest thing that your dog has ever done? Oh, well, she does it most days. She just, if if you don't give her her treat or her, she will sit and just stare at the wall with her nose against the wall. <laughs> if we go, if we go anywhere that she doesn't like, she just walks straight up to the wall and just sits and look at the, looks at the wall. Oh, like a protest! Like yeah, I'm not happy yeah. here, protesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. At first, you feel really bad, but as it, it's one of those protests that wears a bit thin, I'd imagine. But she keeps doing it, so a bit like a toddler does, kind of thing. But she's getting an old dog now, yeah. so she's a bit more pronounced now. She will just sort of shift her head up a little bit, waddle over, bang her nose against the wall, and just stare at it until the situation is more to her liking, whatever it is. She's a diva. What a diva! It could yeah. be worse, though, Mike, couldn't it? Because it could be a dirty protest. Because some dogs are a bit, uh, uh, are a bit. No, no, she's she's she's, she's more intellectual than that. <laughs> Good. She's like Belgian. That. She's Belgian, so she's quite philosophical and and intellectual. Oh, I yeah. like her style. Okay. If you were to participate in karaoke, what would be the song that you would blast out on that microphone? Pick the ribbon from your head, take it loose and let it fall. Hold it soft against my skin, like a shadow on a wall. Oh, Mike, I did not know we were going to get a rendition. That is well, amazing. Pre-karaoke, I used to go quite a lot to beer colours where there'd be a guy on an accordion. And you and you would ask him for a request, and then you would sing while he played. Um, I don't know if it's I don't know if you ever went to them, and no. uh, that was always my song. So the guy on the accordion, wherever it was, would be playing away, and I'd can you play? Help me make it through the night, and then I would sing it to much acclaim. <laughs> I can't sing a note to be honest, but there you go. Oh, that was quite delightful, Mike. And if I'm, I was not expecting that, you moved to tears. I can tell. This will be the second time that you've moved me to tears, Mike, but for very, very different reasons. We'll come to that later in the podcast. Right. I want to know um, what is your unpopular opinion? So something that you hold dear and believe to be true, but not many people agree with you on. Yeah, I've I, I just asked Kathy, my partner, that one because I couldn't really think of something. She, she was saying my. My background is, is is was in British Steel. I spent twenty seven years on the on the shop floor there, twenty eight years. And she thinks, on one hand, I'm very disciplined and I like everybody to get to work on time and all that boring stuff. On the other hand, I expect everybody to be creative, and I don't think that's unpopular or people don't agree. But that's what she's told me that I should say. So I'm going to say that. Oh, quite like that. So you're quite contradictory in that sense. Yeah, well, in everything. <laughs> Let's get into our chat because there's loads that I want to cover today. You are the managing director of the Scottish Cranach Centre. Tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get to where you are now? I think, as I said, I left school at 16, went straight into the into the steelworks in Middlesbrough where I stayed, and I always wanted it's where I always wanted to work. 
very proud to work there. And my first first day in work was maybe 100 lads in there. And this great big guy got on the stage and said, you know, welcome to British Steel kind of thing. Uh, you're following in the footsteps of giants that have built the world and all this stuff. And I still believe it. So it's it's kind of kind of uh, did the trick. So, yeah, and, and I stayed there and stayed there and loved it. Um, towards the end of my time, I started to do an open university degree when I was in my late 30s. Just basically so, because I, I could help the kids with the homework and stuff, I suppose. Wow. I don't know anybody from my school that went to university or even to college. We all went to work. So, so, so yeah, that was that. And then through doing my stuff at the Open University, you start to go to get a different idea of what museums could be. Started to realise that nobody was really telling in our story very well, the steelwork story, the, where I lived, the locality and everything. So we set up a little group around our shift and with a couple of volunteers uh, called Iron Ore, A-W-E, A-W-E, which I thought was quite smart at the very time. Very good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we went into schools and we did, we got a bit of funding to make films. We did a fantastic film of the first uh, strikes, really, with 400 kids all marching, marching down the streets, demanding to only work eight hours a day and all the rest of it, which was really great. Anyway, to cut a long story short, we'd been asked to go down to uh, to London. We'd won this award, which was really funny because we had had a few beers on the train going down and we get to London to go to the Strand where we'd won this uh, Roots and Wings Award, beat loads of posh museums. And the guy in the door wouldn't let us in because <laughs> we didn't look like museum people. And there was no, <laughs> there was no, he thought we were just trying to blag in for the for the wine or whatever. So we uh, had to run to a phone box. There was no, well, mobile phones were out, but I didn't have one uh, the early days. And uh, I had to ring the lady up and say, your man on the door won't let us in. Oh, uh, amazing. We, we're not the right type. <laughs> <laughs> so you never really fitted. You never really fitted the the traditional yeah. museum mould. Yeah, no, and, and and it's still exactly the same. Funny enough, so and on the back of that, on the way home, we got back early early doors, and I was six till one shift. And when I got in, there was a message on the phone from the National Park, North York Moors National Park, just asking me if I was interested in applying the director of Rydale Folk Museum, wow. which is a, a rural museum in the North York Moors. So I went for it. Don't know why, and got the job. Don't know how. Then I had the big decision whether to to leave all my friends that we'd been to each other's 18th, 21st, weddings, all the rest of it. Um, that was a huge decision. I always remember, I only ever had one good boss at British Steel. All the bosses were crap. Um, but I went in to see him, the guy I really trusted, and he just said, you know, you've got to go. There's, there's thousands of lads here that would chop the right arm off to do a job like that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I went over to this to the, to the museum and 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 there you go so that's that's how I kind of ended up in this in this sector really gosh that's amazing and and it literally all came from you going back to do an open university course to help your kids it wasn't it wasn't necessarily about you and a new career and t- changing your path no 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 lasting lasting in my head I think that's really motivating to hear because I think a lot of people think that by the time you're 30, you should have it all together. I'm 60 and I haven't got it together. <laughs> 45, no clue. Yeah. But do you know what I mean? I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of people out there that kind of by that point, they think, well, you should have your career sorted by then. You should know what your trajectory is and what you're doing. And it just goes to show that, you know, there's there's an opportunity to change your life whenever you decide to. Yeah, you need luck, I think. Yeah, you need a lot of luck. And I, I, I was, yeah, I've been lucky in that, in that sense, I think. As I say, and, I, and my plant is still going, you know. So I would be retired now, which is a bit of a reflection on a bad decision made now, looking back. <laughs> um, but, uh, oh, yeah. 
there you go. But yeah, and 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 it was a completely bloody hell, completely different world. You know, I'd never met a vegetarian before, ever. So culturally, it took you into a place that was so oh. far from what you knew. Yeah, I was lucky enough to, I've been doing the job about a year or so, and I was lucky enough to win a Claw Fellowship, which is like a, a high-level training thing. And they send you around the world and all sorts. It's, it's brilliant. I went and stayed with a fantastic guy, a First Nation Canadian chief on the Pacific Coast. Anyway, but I'd gone to this place, and again, I got to this really posh spot down in Kent near Seven Oaks and said, I'm in the right place. And the lady said, I don't think so. <laughs> I'd driven all the way there on Milan Bretta uh, with sidecar. So that was interesting. And we'd gone out for a meal somewhere, myself and the other Claw Fellows. And we had a bit of a cord thing going on, I think, when I was at British Steel, where if you were a little bit skint, um, if you'd gone out for a drink or for a meal or whatever, you would say you'd pay with your credit card. And the lads would think, oh, bloody hell, he's skint. So we'd all chip in. Right. Anyway, I goes for this meal and, uh, and my fellow Claw Fellows, at the end of the night, I'll put the credit cards on the table. And I thought, bloody hell, everybody's skinned. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I ended up paying for, offering to pay the bill, which I did, which then left me skinned. And then, then I cottoned on. That was just the, the way things were. That Because, again, you would never use your credit card. It was just like something that you very rarely would use. But oh, in the real world, everybody uses their credit cards all the time. What a brilliant story. Yeah. And, you know, another one is when I first went into the into Rydale, there was a guy there and I'd asked him to do something. And he said, no, no, it's not my job. And at British Steel, you were kind of saying, I'm going to give you five minutes to think about it. I'm going to send you home. So I gave him his five minutes and I sent him home. And then I had a, a gaggle of trustees coming in about an hour later saying, what are you doing? I said, listen, I give him his five minutes and I sent him home. And they were like, what? <laughs> doesn't work like that here. <laughs> what, world, what planet did you come from? <laughs> wow. So you changed your life and then you went through quite a lot of <laughs> crisis. <laughs> Crisis. learning experiences. Yeah, I had to learn a whole new lexicon. And after so long, I thought, sod it, just be yourself. I, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right, because you bring something quite magic to everywhere that you go. And I've seen that from the way that you've spoken and the way that other people have spoken about you. Right. Let's talk about the Cranach Centre. So you're the managing director of the Scottish Cranach Centre. What's a Cranach yeah. for our audience that are listening? What is a Cranach? Well, I've, I've Googled it. <laughs> so did I, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I Googled it because it is many things to many different people. Um, I Googled it, and it's an artificial island that people might have lived on. It might have been a wooden structure. It could have been a... So basically, particularly in Scotland and in, in Ireland, you'll see as you're going around the locks, you'll see little clumps of, of stone in the middle of the lock or to one side with a tree in or something. And at some point, that would have been an artificial island that somebody made into a dwelling so I think that's that's if you google it good I mean, for, yeah for us it, it, and interestingly after the fire it's been it, it was it's it's a symbol of of home it's a symbol of community it's a symbol of what can be achieved the engineering was unbelievable the joinery skills were unbelievable the uh the can-do-ness you know you think two and a half thousand years ago it must have been bloody freezing and all, everybody was sat in a cave and all this stuff. And actually, there they were, building these beautiful homes, places, whatever. And, you know, they could be places of of prestige and what have you, but they were a home. And inside there, they would have been playing a seven-stringed musical instrument. We've got, you know, evidence of that in the collection. They would have been trading with, you know, this is before Brexit, they were trading with Europe, which is a, a continent that's very near to was just over the water. Yeah. 
that's really easy to trade with. Used to be. Um, so all that stuff. Um, so yeah, I think for and it's it, it's it's become a a place where where everybody can contribute, everybody can learn a skill, and 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 kind of inspired by that notion, whether it's romantic or not, that everybody has a part to play, and that's how you get a, a flourishing community. So, so what's the just just for our listeners who who may not have visited or who may not know what the the, the Cranach Centre is for? Like, what is the Cranach Centre's purpose? What is it? Has it been created to kind of um, showcase or, or? Yeah, so so it's it's literally on one on, on the on the straight level, if you like, to tell the the stories of the Cranach dwellers, the day to day lives of the of what the what the best we can. You know, we don't know exactly. That's the beauty of it. Half of half of what we say is based on certainty. The other half is based on opinion, because that's we can only go on the evidence that we have. You know, we have a number of archaeologists at work, and you know, you get three archaeologists, you get four theories, and it's like that every day, and and that constant learning that goes on. So, so on that level, it's to tell a story of of, of those kind of dwellers from two and a half thousand years ago, but also I think to be relevant for today, to look at sustainability, to look at the learning opportunities that people have. We have a thing on the on the wall at work where we um, we put on the, 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 the questions that the public have asked that week. One of them was from a little girl asking how far the Christmas would get in because there isn't a chimney. Good question, yeah. Yeah. The best one was, uh, you know, but bearing in mind we employ 23 people. Are you all related? Oh! <laughs> so we didn't quite know how to take that. Because it's... <laughs> Is that because is that because you it all feels like a family or is it all yeah yeah you you all bicker like a family maybe yeah but we we kind of rub along and get there and we all cover each other's backsides and we work really hard or try to that's a really nice question yeah yeah I'm hoping it was done in the right way (laughs) I love that right okay so I want to take you back a little bit because you mentioned a minute ago about fire. And there's so many lovely positive things that I want to talk about, but I think we have to go back a little bit and talk about what happened. So I can remember very vividly, uh, it was the 16th of June, and I was on uh, a webinar, which was for ASVA members. And you came on to the webinar and shared the news of what had just happened. And I, I genuinely was so moved that I had to switch my camera off and have a little cry. It was a really, It was a really difficult thing to watch you talk about. I can only imagine what you were feeling at that point, but would you be able to just take us back and explain what happened on the, I think it was the the morning of the 16th, wasn't it? The early hours of the 16th or the, the evening. Yeah, the it, was just a couple of, it was just a couple of days before then and and I'm still a bit raw and I was in two minds whether to do that, that call really, but I didn't realise, I thought, yeah, I'll just go and tell them we've had a fire. But I didn't really, um, yeah, it's, it's still quite raw when I think about it. I can imagine. So at 11 o'clock at night, when you look at the CCTV, there's a little tiny glow inside the Cranog. And then by six minutes past, it's gone. And Rich, one of the assistant directors there, had rang me up. I was in bed asleep. Rang me up and said, Mike, the Cranog's on fire. And I said, yeah, that's fine. I'll sort it out in the morning. <laughs> Went back to sleep. And uh, he rang me back again. Mike, Mike, it's really on fire. And I could hear all the fire engines and everything going behind him. So of course I raced down. By the time I got there, it was it was gone. Um, I think there was five fire engines, loads of police, and all the rest of it. And um, yeah, it was quite difficult. The chair of trustees was there. He was bereft. He got there before me. Um, obviously, lots of tears. There was a couple of 
you know, members of staff who'd locked themselves in the car were crying. So basically, we we made a few calls, got everybody on site around about half one in the morning, I think, at, at night. Um, so it's still black and the lights are still flashing. So I just said to everybody, you know what? Nobody's been hurt. Thank our lucky stars. Nobody's been hurt. Um, we're going to do exactly what the Cranock dwellers would have done. We're going to pack up our things, which for us is the collection, the precious things that they've left for us. And we're going to move. And I've, I exaggerate this a little bit, but the reality was on the mo following morning at nine o'clock, we sat there and we had we had no money. We had no plan. We didn't quite know what was going to happen. By about half ten that morning, we were starting to have, to have a plan. And, and we'd, we'd fortunately, fortunately, had already through a community asset transfer, which is where a community group can make an application to, to local authority or to the government to buy something at a reduced price. And um, we'd already bought the new site on the other side of the lock through community asset transfer. Oh, amazing. And by the second day, I think, over 50,000 had come into the Just Giving page. It was an incredible outpouring of, yeah, of community yeah, spirit, but, wasn't it? The support that you got was, I mean, it was local, national. Yeah, people ringing in to offer volunteer time, money coming in. We had the politicians involved. We were charged by Scottish government, not straight away, after a couple of a bit of time, maybe a week or so, we were we were asked to try and come up with a plan that was realistic, that wouldn't cost too much, that would get the organisation away. It, it wouldn't be the full full Monty, but it would get us up and running. We presented that plan to Scottish government, and they've agreed to support us, as have as have other trust foundations and and everybody else. So we've started work on the new site, March. So in less than two years, we've got through planning, which anybody knows with planning is, isn't easy. And they, even though they were sympathetic, they had their protocols to go through. We raised the money. We hit January this year and we were a little bit short because of everything's gone up with, you know, with inflation. We filled that funding gap and we're hoping to open in November. Ah, oh, that is magic. I think what we have to remember as well is this was happening still during while the pandemic was going on. So this was 2021 that this happened. So we were still in a position of, you know, yeah. places not being fully open, still having yeah. all of that, that own kind of personal impact that we were we were struggling with, as well as having something like this happen. I, just, yeah. I, I can see it in your eyes now when you, I can hear it when you're talking, the emotion about that, that day is still kind of with you. You hold it still there. But the way that you've the way that you were able to that the very next day have a plan in place is testimony to, I think, yourself and the people that you have surrounding you and how much they love that centre, that you've been able to kind of come back so quickly and make this happen. Yeah, I mean, we opened four days after the fire, obviously with no Cranog, a bit like the Van Gogh Museum without any Van Goghs. And we were just, we didn't think we'd get many visitors and they just powered in. Amazing. That's the power of telling great stories, Mike. People still want to come. Yeah, that's all it is. You know, without getting on my little hobby horse, maybe it goes back to the earlier question about your opinion. I think museums still have a long way to go, really, in, in how they how they work. And, and it's just really simple, really. Just you're telling a good story that people want to listen to and, and hear. And um, we kind of do that best we can. Yeah. No, you really do. We're a little bit wonky on the edges. <laughs> but that's Mike. allowed. 
that's what people love that's what people love I think that um there's there's such a a level of authenticity about how you speak and the way that you do things and that's for me what I find really engaging I saw you speak last year at the uh, Scottish Tourism Alliance conference I think it was last November yeah it was was slick it was slick no it really was (laughs) slick you you (laughs) joked but I really enjoyed it. So Mike did a really clever thing. So so he was billed as the speaker, but he actually got other people to speak for him, <laughs> which I thought was genius. Um, <laughs> I'm going to use that at some point whenever I'm asked to speak. No, but it was great. So you um you spoke about the Cranach Center, but you talked about how you've harnessed potential and, and created this really great working environment. And and you've done that by building a really diverse workforce um and group and volunteers and people that come along and just you know help and support you and I think it is such an amazing story you have a lot of young people that come and work and volunteer at the centre while they were speaking for you (laughs) and sharing their experience (laughs) of working there I was just blown away by all of the amazing opportunities that you can offer them like bearing in mind this is a relatively small centre that we're talking about we're not talking about the V&A we're not talking about the London Transport Museum here the variety of what of what those youngsters can do there and what they can learn and what they can be part of is incredible and I think you know you help a lot of youngsters that are struggling with mainstream education by offering them a different way of learning, a different way of being involved with things. And I just I could talk to us about how you've managed to create this this incredible working environment. Yeah, again, I think it's I can't take any credit for it, really. It's just it's kind of what I grew up with as well. When you went into into somewhere, you, there was quite a diverse workforce that worked where, you know, in, in British Steel or wherever. You know, part of the learning and part of your your reflections are certainly within the within the task of what what a museum is. If you want to engage with diverse audiences, you need to have a diverse workforce. Mm-hmm. People need to be able to come into that museum and see people like themselves, not just there, but actually having having agency, being able to make decisions, being leaders, being able to flourish, being able to be themselves. We talk about freedom of self. You know that ability to be really be yourself at work. And, and another word I kind of made up is, is that feltness. We call it feltness, where people can just come in and feel that there's something there, that they can just feel that there's love or hard work or graft or academic rigour or, or all of those things thrown into the pot and, and that diversity is that you can feel it. And, and again, time and time again, when people come and we ask them, you know, what what the feedback is, it's they can just feel something there that they can't quite put the finger on. So we've called it feltness. That's a really, that's a, it's a lovely way of defining it, but that's a really hard thing to create. Like, how do you create that? I guess it's a mixture of of the people and the characters that you have working there and the things that they can do and the things that they are allowed to do. The, I guess the autonomy that you give them. Yeah. And being aspirational and wanting to be the best that we can be. So I think, you know, that, that notion of, of creativity that, aligned to discipline, that unleashing of of folks. We're, we're all hemmed in nowadays by all kinds of barriers and we're kind of shuffled along, a, like, I don't know, like through a maze almost. And we, we sometimes, we, we, almost uncontrollably, we end up somewhere. I just think to be able to just break all that down and just start again is uh, is no bad thing. And so we've uh, that's what we've tried to do with the Chronic Centre there. And take that inspiration, as I said, from that notion of a community that could flourish. Yeah. Everybody must be able to contribute. 
How have you done that? Did you set out in your in your mind when you went to the Cranach Centre? Did you set out and go, this is what I want. I want to be able to offer all of these different experiences to young people who are struggling with mainstream education? Or was it, or is this something that's just kind of happened naturally that you've attracted people? Like how, how have you set out to kind of do it? Yeah, that we set out to do it that way. So, you know, my interview, I said that we would set up an apprenticeship programme, we would set up blah, blah, blah. Create a framework for success and it depends what you call success, whether it's footfall, whether it's donations, people give, making donations, whether it's how much you sell in the shop, whatever that your success measures are. So so each of the museum that I've been at, we've done something similar with the apprenticeship programme, with the with the diversity and that. And I think that the that here we've managed to take all the learning of what I've done what we've done so far, if you like, and, and put it all into practice. And it doesn't always work. It doesn't bloody hell, it doesn't always work. And sometimes you think to yourself, God, it'd be much easier just to get a load of we we interviewed some some folks that we're getting a craft fellow funded through Hess. That's somebody who's going to learn traditional skills, and the amount of young people that came to that with two degrees and a masters and a half a PhD and stuff, you know, I just think it's it must be really hard to 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 get your break in in in, in into this game into the museum world. If we can create different routes and that, um, I was asked by trustees. What would make you happy in 10 years' time? And I said, for one of the apprentices to be the director. Oh, that's lovely. And I think having that approach, I think, is, is you know, and, that, and it happens in business all the time. You know, it's, I think the museum's still stuck in a, around hierarchy and prestige and a certain type of knowledge and a certain type of person. But yeah, if we, if, I think that's kind of where we were going with that. That's really lovely. But, but you are a small team, Mike, Mike. There's not, there's not thousands of people at this museum that are, that are helping no, you do no, this. No, so, no, so what no. you've been able to achieve with a relatively small team is 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 incredibly impressive. Who heads up the programme? Is that you? Who defines what the kind of apprenticeship programme looks like and the structure? Yeah, so when, when, I, I kind of keep my paws out with that, really. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm really good at talking a good job, but I don't actually do anything. <laughs> You're a leader, Mike. No, no, I, honestly, I, I, I'm not good at anything. I am not good at anything. You know, Kathy, my partner, will say I can't, can't put a screw in the wall or anything. And I certainly, you know, I'm literally no good at anything. But, yeah, I think we just create an environment. And, and again, we get bogged down with business planning and all that all the time. I did a talk to to some community groups the other day, and, it, and I just used the image of a sunflower. Because quite often, you know, you'll sit, your consultants will come and say, you need that business plan, it needs to be really hard. And yet a sunflower doesn't really have much of a business plan. It just follows the sun and, and soaks it all up and grows where it's best. And I think just sometimes you can be a bit too... Uh, dis- so all I was saying to him is, you know, be a bit more sunflowery than uh, than these than these folks and tell them to get stuffed if they, if they think it's nonsense. So I think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm waddling on as I always do. <laughs> uh, I think I think it's just, as I say, cr- create an environment and, and, and it's really hard. It's 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 much harder to create that environment than it would be to have a straight structure, straight linear. You report to him, you report to him. Nothing happens until he's signed that off. So it's chaos. It's bloody chaos. But it's but that, is that partly because you're not asking people to come in and fit your mould? You're almost asking them to come in, and then you're flexing your mould to how they need to grow and adapt. So yeah, you're, you, yeah. you it's, you've got it's wobbling a, all the time. Yeah, it really is, and it's not for everybody. It's really hard. So. It's not for everyone, so particularly those trained within the museum profession that like straight lines, it's really hard. 
or anybody that likes to work at Duchess Museums in general, it's it, it's not for everyone. So, so sometimes when we, you know, some folks, it just, they come and work with us and it doesn't work for everyone because mm-hmm. they, they want to see that, that comfort, really. It's that comfort of that straight line and somebody's going to tell me what to do. Uh, I mean, I have no clue what's happening at work half the time. They're going to say, oh, we decided to do this, all right, or... Um, and it's... <laughs> This guy's turned up, he's going to do this, oh, smashing. But that takes a lot to be that flexible, though, doesn't it? Like you yeah. say, you know, that you know, sometimes we, 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 as humans, we kind of like a plan. We like to see the trajectory. We like to see what the next step is. And, and not being able to see that is uncomfortable for a lot of us. Yeah. So to have an organisation that's so fluid, that's not for everybody at all. You have to be quite, I think you've got to be quite a special person to be able to lead an organisation that is structured like that. Hence the baggy eyes. Yeah. <laughs> what does the future look like for the Cranach Centre? So you've, you've had a grant from Scottish Government and it's being rebuilt on the new site, which is directly across the lock from where... Um... 12 times bigger. We're building it as a nine-age village as well. So that so we're doing it the wrong way around, kind of. Instead of building the Cranach first, we're building a nine-age village. So what's next is we'll, we'll try and get that done. This was always project one. As I said, we needed to have something that was would get us up and running um, and then project two will be to build a proper museum so at one end of Scotland's most powerful river lies the V&A in Dundee and at the other end of Scotland's most powerful river the Tay will lie our new museum as well as we go into project two hopefully with a deeper sense of belonging and more heft he says don't quote me on that so and and it will be a different different type because I think the V&A will probably be one of the last of the big concrete super-duper designed uh, museums. Not not critical at all, but I think as the world's moved on to a more sustainable models, there'll be diff- maybe a different approach to how public buildings like that are built in the future. Mm. So that's what's coming next, if you like. Whether I'm well, still there to do that or not, who knows? Well, I mean, yeah. one of your apprentices will be director by then, probably, yeah, Mike, if, if, you get, yeah. if you get your way. What does that look like in terms of timeframes, though? So what are we looking at in terms of the new centre being open um, across on the on the other side of the lock. So we'll, we'll, we're hopefully going to do a soft opening in November. So it's all about, as I've said, home and feeling safe and being yourself. So that opening will be potentially, you know, we'll have uh, the Mary Hills Refugee Choir there. We'll have bands there and everything else. It's just going to be really... And we're maybe looking at how we can have on the old site some instruments there and some instruments on our side and they talk to each other across the lock. Oh, that's we, lovely. Yeah, to share the stories of the old and the new. And the new. Yeah, and then the, the log boat will probably come along with a with a torch and all that sort of stuff. And anyway, it's all in my, it's all, everybody's talking about different things. We'll pull it all together. So soft opening in November and then we'll go large in for Easter. And you talked a little bit earlier about sustainability. Is that right? I think I read this, is that the centre is aiming for its new incarnation to become Scotland's most sustainable museum, but not, not just about carbon count, but but about the kind of the craft and the skills and the sustainability yeah. of materials. Yeah. Is that about how it's being built and constructed as well as what you do there? Yeah, so we've got um, some brilliant folks on site now. So we've got um, Julie, Laura, Jodie, who are women carpenters who are working away. Chaz, again, carpenter. Uh, Jim, our stonewall builder. And then Brian, our thatcher, will be joining us once he's finished the job up north. And while they're there, they're sharing the the, 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 the plan is that all those skills... Uh, oh, I forgot Hamish, he's building our uh, 
He's the, he's built the first one up. It's a, it's a hazel six meter high hazel roundhouse. It's gorgeous. Uh-huh. Uh, he's nearly finished that working with uh, with Nelly. Anyway, give him all a name check. Uh, so the idea being that those skills are shared across the Cranog team. So in future years, the idea is that the the Iron Age village that we're building now, the buildings are only ever intended to last seven years, ish, oh. seven to ten years. Then they'll go back into the earth from whence they came. Across the road is a is a hill called Drummond Hill, and that's where we'll be starting to coppice to grow the materials that we need to build these. So we employ Ian the coppicer. And we'll have Jenny, the forest gardener. So all the materials and the, the, the timbers, the stone, the, the the reed for the thatch, the heather, it's all within walking distance of a Cranog dweller. Is that, so this seven-year cycle, is that w- what would have happened back then then? So they, they only... Yeah, you're into the coppicing cycle, you wow. see, of, of the... I'm no expert on this. It sounds like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't. However, Ian, the coppice guy, does, and Jenny, the forest gardener, does. So within the... That the, the forestry land services are taking out the larch. There's a disease coming in the hill opposite. Hopefully, we'll 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 take over some of that land where we will coppice and, and start to plant the materials that we need for the future hazel. Seven years, then the the oak and everything else will take a bit longer. But in years to come, that'll be a totally sustainable. And you literally will cross the road and take a tree down and build a building out of it. That is magic, isn't it? That is really. Impressive. And that's what's happening now. So. So the timbers that are coming on site are within walking distance and the buildings that are going up is all, you know, the stone is just locally sourced. Everything's just yeah. from over the road. And that's that requires a different skill set rather than just getting the timber from Norway or something from Jusons, you know, learning how to use local, 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 local materials and, and, and making these buildings stay up and stand up and all that sort of stuff yeah. is is a task in itself. For me, it's that idea of those crafts never dying as well. You know, yeah. like, the, you know, who nobody, we don't want that guy to be the last coppicer. No, those skills and... have to be transferred in, in a way that they are shared with the younger generation. Like, I'm thinking about my two-year-old, you know, yeah. uh, one day, how lovely would it be to come and bring her and show her the way that people used to build houses back in the day? And we don't forget those things. That's yeah. what's important. And the fact that you can make a living out of it so, you know, when people come to see us, they are supporting keeping all that alive. Yeah. And that's part of the thinking around that we'll take the the buildings that we're building now down in seven or eight years' time because that's how you'll learn to build them again. Yeah, I guess, of course, yeah, because then that then the new people can learn, they've learned yeah. their skills, can learn to go through all of that process. And then... And the apprentices that are there now learning will be the ones that are teaching yeah that's really that's really cool it's, it's, it? a, it's an old old model but it's just it's just how it is so and in a way you forget the simplicity of that don't you you just forget yeah yeah and, and then within that sustainability as well if we become a you know the sort of organization that people want to partner with and work alongside and we also a place that people want to visit and support so you've got the the skills materials you know the those four elements and that then we think that will create a sustainable model. What more help do you need, Mike? So you've had a grant from Scottish Government. You've had a huge outpouring of support from the general public when when we had the fire. You mentioned a little while ago about a funding gap. Obviously, cost of living yeah. crisis has probably you know affected that, the, the rising cost of materials, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. What can we do to help you? You know, it's, could there be somebody listening that could be could help you 
or is there a is there still a live kind of GoFunding part that we can all go? Yeah, the, you can still go on 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 to our website and donate. If it, and I understand how hard it is for religious now as well, by the way. Um, and you know that's so. So we 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 are still writing little applications here, there, and everywhere just to try and co- cover that those, those final bits. And it's really hard because what we've tried to do, what we could have done, is just close the current site, build the you know get the the main contract has gone in and putting the drains in and the car parks and all that stuff in. Then we could, but we tried to keep everybody employed yeah. um, and and keep the apprenticeship going and everything else. And that's been quite a challenge. Obviously, we haven't got a Cranog, even though we're still getting, we've improved our Vista figures to last year, just, um, but it's really hard without that, that central point. And the old site is looking tired, which is why we always intended to move. So I think it's, if, if anybody did want to help us in that way, that would be great. And and also just share that share the share the word really and just you know tell folks to come and visit us if they can. Yeah. Yeah, that's the best way to help. You know, just paying your, your seven pound to come in and see us and just be part of it and, and keep a little bit of that love in your heart when you leave. Oh Mike, you're gonna make me cry again. <laughs> this will be the third time that you've got me. <laughs> um we are gonna share uh, in the show notes to this episode, we're gonna share all the ways that you can still support the Scottish Cranegg Centre. So, you know, we'll put a link to the website, we'll put a link to the donation portals. Um and yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it it's all about just encouraging people to go along. Seven pounds is not a huge entrance fee to go and experience some of these things that you will never have seen anywhere else. You might learn about a craft that you might never see anywhere else. You know, that's not a huge amount to ask for people. So please dig deep if you can and help them create something that is going to be truly transformational for generations to come, not just for people that visit it, but for the people that go there um, and do these apprenticeship schemes and learn the trades and develop themselves into something that their wildest dreams couldn't have imagined they could have achieved. Mike, thank you for sharing today. I'm so grateful of everyone that comes on to talk to me on the podcast, but your story really did touch me. Um, I was eight months pregnant at the time, Mike, I'm not going to lie. I probably would have dropped, probably would have <laughs> cried if the dog had come in here and looked at me funny, but you did, you yeah. did break me that day. Um, and it's really lovely to hear all the positive things that have happened since then and all of the good things that are happening. Right. What about a book? We always ask our guests to come on and share a book that they love with our audience. It can be anything you like. Well, it's, it's, because I am a museum director and an academic, I'm going to go for the Thursday Murder Club series. <laughs> I knew this. I knew this was not going to be a business book, Mike. Yeah, no, oh, no, I've not planned. Been them all. Don't, don't, and if you see a book with leadership on it. Throw it in the bin. Yeah, I think the. I think you, you know. I don't know if you've if you've read any of them, but uh, Elizabeth Joyce, Ron, and Ibrahim are just. It's just so stupid, and funny, and English, and gentle. It's just lovely. Um, so. I've been uh, plowing my way through all those. I mean, the, the, the plots are way for thin. The whole thing's nonsense, but it's just really good stuff to to kind of remind you what human beings are. Yeah, a lovely good escapism as well, aren't they, those books? They are great. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. as ever, listeners, if you want to win a copy of Mike's book, you know what to do. Go over to our Twitter account um, and hit the retweet button with the message, I want Mike's book, and we'll put you into the prize draw to win a book and that is for the last time this season because this is the last podcast of this season which is crazy we've had so many guests on 
so many amazing stories, so many initiatives that have been shared with us and so many learnings that I've personally taken away. Thank you all for listening. We will be back again in September after we've had a little summer break, because let's face it, you lot are going to be way too busy for podcasts over the summer visiting, uh, having one of your guests visit. So, Mike, thank you again. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm really glad that you came on the podcast and you didn't send, you know, somebody else to come and do the podcast. I was in two minds. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you for coming on. Like we said, we're going to put all of the um, details on how you can still help the Cranach Centre into the show notes today. Mike, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. No, you'll take care now. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.